You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where it's a sunny 90-something. I don't know. Actually, I think it might even, not, not even might be not that hot, because it's been a little cloudy today. But, you know, I come to you every week here so that folks can hear some of the latest of what's going on in Lane County, maybe talk a little bit of national state politics, whatever comes to mind. But I want to say today is National Scotch Day. I didn't know that Scotch had its own holiday in the United States, but woo! I'm a big single malt Highland Scotch fan, so I'll celebrate that after 5 o'clock today um, as okay. National Scotch Day. <laughs> Robin, you wanted to jump in about scotch? No, I said I'll drink to that. You'll drink to that? Okay. Yeah, so National Scotch Day, I, I never knew it was a thing, but I will definitely celebrate. Um, so, and particularly after some of what I've got to talk about today, because some of this is just downright depressing, and, you know, it, it's like, <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't make you want to drink, I don't know what will. Um so we got no board meeting this week because there's the National Association of Counties meeting and, and you know, so they had us down this week so folks could travel out if they wanted to. Um, but we, we did uh, have a, a open house at the parole and probation's new headquarters um, that they just opened at Roosevelt in 99, which is a really great thing. Um, talk about that some today. But I wanted to talk about some other things going on that maybe aren't necessarily county issues, but they're local somewhat and state. And then one that's a big county issue because um, our DA actually announced publicly some issues I talked about last week on the Bose Nose Show that are relative to her inability to keep experienced staff on the, in the district attorney's office. And her announcement today is that she will not be filing nonviolent Class C felonies and many uh, nonviolent misdemeanors. So uh, we'll talk about that in Bo's News Show. First thing I want to talk about, though, is the city of Springfield basically, you know, tipping their hat that they plan to legally challenge the state's new set of land use laws they're putting out through the Department of Land Conservation and Development. Now, normally, changes in our 
statewide land use laws, which were created by the legislature through Senate Bill 100, you know, the, the much celebrated Senate Bill 100 that, that took away local control of land development and placed it in the hands of the state to a certain degree, where we all had to meet these statewide goals, many of which are conflicting with each other. So there's been multiple laws and legal actions to try and straighten the mess out. And, and if you're not an attorney, um, I, I defy you to understand how to build a subdivision or a house sometimes in this state. Um, but that all said, almost all of our land use regulations, the Oregon administrative rules, which is the regulations that the localities have to follow to adhere to this stuff is preceded by legislature to write statutes which are then implemented by those rules. Legislature passes a bill that becomes Oregon revised statute. Then a department under the governor writes administrative rules to implement that statute. You got that? Legislature writes the law. The executive branch writes the rules to implement the law. Now, back up a little bit to when the the governor decided that she was going to use executive powers to override the legislature, which wouldn't pass what she wanted in the way of, um, you know, climate change, whatever you want to call it, implementations. They had that the carbon uh, cap and trade bill that failed. So she's going to try and do it all by executive order. And one of the things she did was direct her Department of Land Conservation and Development to write some new rules to force the largest cities in our state to implement climate-friendly zoning. Now, mind you, a lot of what's in the climate-friendly zoning has been long-time want-tos uh, by the environmentalists and the anti-automobile people um, and the um, Agenda 21 driven planners for years that want to try and push people out of their individual automobiles, which give you individual freedom of travel and force us into situations where we have to depend on government-provided mass transit. So these, quote, climate-friendly uh, neighborhood laws that they're, they're forcing through the administrative rule do things like minimize the amount of parking allowed. Instead of, you know, saying this is the minimum amount of parking you have to provide because we know people that are going to live in your apartment complex are going to drive cars, so you need to at least supply, you know, two parking spaces for every apartment. No, now it is you can't provide any more than a certain number of spaces. And for the most part, it's usually less than one space per dwelling unit. Do you understand what that will do to on-street parking in some neighborhoods as, as people start implementing um, the previous legislation that took away single-family zoning where now you can have, have quads, you know, 
fourplex homes in a single family zone. You can, you know, tear down a single family home and put up a, a quadplex in a area that doesn't really have on street parking and not supply a lot of parking. You know, um, it's going to be an issue. And Springfield understands that because the American public loves the individual freedom of travel of owning their own automobile and not being dependent on government-provided mass transit. And quite often, families have more than one. Mom, dad, both work, have to have individual transportation. Teenage son, you know, ends up being the carpool for everybody else in the family to get to and from school events while mom and dad are at work. Three cars. You know, it, it, it gets, you know, so you can imagine what some of this stuff is going to do. But the whole thing is it's all being done without legislation. It's being done through executive order. And this is a trend that is happening across the state. It's a trend that's happening across many uh, progressive states, and it's happening in Washington, D.C. You cannot legislate with executive orders. unless you've been previously given some emergency powers by the legislature to do executive orders under a, a declared emergency. And even that's been violated here in Oregon. But the problem is, you know, I, I feel for the city of Springfield, you know, the, the governor can't legislate, the Department of Land Conservation and Development can't develop new rules that don't have statute behind them. But the problem is, if you take the state to task over that legally, you end up in a court system, which due to the, the flawed method of how we, we appoint judges in this state, where a judge can leave office prior to the end of their term, and at that point, their replacement is appointed by the governor. And no one wants to run against that person as an incumbent because they might have to appear before that judge as an attorney. Because you can only be a judge if you're a, a member of the bar and, and good standing in this state. What happens is, particularly after a long period of control by a single party, is that judiciary branch is effectively owned by the party in power and owes their jobs to the party in power. So even though the, the suit against the governor about her, her COVID declaration of emergency should have been having to be renewed every once in a while by the legislature under Oregon statutes and our constitution, the state Supreme Court found that she was fine and used a different statute to try and justify her continued emergency powers. Because Why? Because almost the entire Supreme Court was appointed by Kate Brown. Now, you can imagine, I, 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 I think the city of Springfield is correct. I think the rules that the you know, Division of Land Conservation Development is putting together are overly prescriptive. 
way too detailed and don't allow any flexibility for local control, and they're not backed up by statute. They're not, you know, there's no legislation behind these changes. Problem is, is they're going to eventually get up through the appeals court, and, you know, which is also controlled by Cape Brown appointees, and then ultimately the, the Oregon Supreme Court, and they'll probably lose because the Oregon Supreme Court's not going to rule against Cape Brown. They'll find some way to justify the legislation, legislating from the executive branch. You could just imagine the outrage if we had a Republican governor doing such things because they couldn't get, you know, the legislature to pass something. They were going to declare there must, there's an emergency here and I'm going to just use executive orders to implement the legislation I couldn't get through the legislature. Never a good thing. There's a great reason why Almost all of our governments, federal and state, have been set up with a balance of powers between three co-equal branches of government and why they shouldn't, they should be much more independent. We have a judiciary that's become a vassal of the Democrat Party and a governorship that's been controlled by Democrats for, for decades a supermajority in the legislature, so we have one-party rule here in Oregon, and they're willing to mix these powers. But the legislature is the only one that can make law. The governor's got the right to veto it if she disagrees and see if it withstands an override vote, but she can't make law. She can propose a bill, but it still has to pass the House and the Senate. The The Making of laws is purely vested in the legislative branch, not the executive branch with the governor. It's also not vested in the judicial branch. Some of these judicial decisions where they make law with them create a, 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 a right or some kind of law, you know, declare sort of it be in existence, are such incorrect decisions. If there's a problem where there isn't a law that that does what those people want to do in the court, they need to go to the legislature and get a law passed. Courts can't make law. The legislature also is the only place you have you can appropriate money. You can't take money from one program that the legislature has given it to and move it to another with executive orders. Another thing that quite often gets violated. As you hear how President Biden is talking about how much he's going to spend through executive orders on climate change. He doesn't have the power to allocate funding. That's Congress's power. He has the power once legislation's passed and budgets are approved, he administrates and manages all the departments that implement those laws and has control over appointing the heads of those departments and, and staffing of them. It's, an, it, it's a vast power. But if he's also got the power to make the laws that he's implementing, that's too much power. That's where that balance exists. 
The legislature makes the laws. The administrative executive branch, you know, takes care of implementing. And if there's a dispute over all that, the judiciary is supposed to resolve those disputes. And it's the only place where you can determine whether something was done constitutionally or not. The executive branch can't deter, you know, just say, I'm going to ignore that law because I don't think it's constitutional. They have to go to the judiciary branch and get a ruling by the court. Same thing with legislators. They think the executive branch is doing something extra constitutional. They have to go to the courts and ask for a ruling. But now we're, we're, we're at Oregon system where that court system is now beholding to the executive branch because of the way appointments are being done. Somehow or another, that has to change in Oregon. There has to be either a special election system when somebody resigns for a judicial seat where that we can have com- actual real competitive elections for a judiciary branch, or there has to be a, some kind of different system set up. But it, it's just not working right now. So bravo, City of Springfield, for standing up for separation of powers and for understanding what people really want. People want a place where they know they can park their car every night. They don't want to drive in circles around the block hoping somebody pulls out of a space. And you don't want, because there's so few spaces, people blocking your driveway in. So what happened when the you know, city of Eugene dropped their requirement for parking down so low for apartment complexes. The new apartment complex was built on River Road here uh, about six or seven years ago with that minimum standard, a very low number of, of spaces, one per unit basically. And the tenants all have more than one car per unit, so they're parking in the neighborhood. And there's been fist fights and, you know, property damage done over parking in the neighborhoods around this apartment complex. And now they want to codify stuff like that in an even greater degree. Basically a war on your freedoms. They want you dependent on the government. They want you dependent on mass transit and you have to give up your automobiles. Uh, I, I, it, yeah, it just bothers me how we are losing that, you know, you know, differentiation between legislative branch and executive branch, and not having a fair and objective judiciary, you know, to to resolve disputes about those two things. But good luck, Springfield. I wish you well in in trying to actually challenge the governor's ability to implement these crazy rules. And talking about state and all that stuff, you know, I I mentioned earlier that I went to the parole and probation open house, and and it's a great thing. Parole and probation's kind of been the ugly stepchild in Lane County as far as departments go. It, you know, didn't fit really under the sheriff's office didn't fit well under, you know, 
human services. It doesn't fit well under county administration. We finally moved that and, and youth services, which has a similar supervision structure for youth that are involved in the criminal justice system um, under a single department, but also um, the parole and probation has been located in some of the worst office space besides the district attorneys, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and some of the worst office space Lane County owned. We've actually torn down the building they were originally in, which was the old elections office there where now the Gordon Hotel sits. And, and that building actually had toxic mold in it um, at one point. Moved onto the second floor of our uh, community correction center um, and it was a very crowded space. Uh, there was no real separation of work area and where they met with their clients. And it was frankly dangerous and not a very good setting and, and very difficult access. Um, only one elevator and it was in a bad place and there was no secure parking, all sorts of things wrong with it. They're finally in a great space. And it took a while to, to get the budget together to pay for that. And, it also puts them in a good place because it added a law enforcement presence in a neighborhood that kind of needed it down there at 99 and Roosevelt. Um, having, you know, parole and probation guys, although the majority of their duty is, is more like a guidance counselor, you know, and, and mentor, <laughs> they are law enforcement officers. They have the ability to arrest people. They do carry handcuffs and a service revolver at times. So um, it's, you know, having that sort of presence down there is sort of helpful for, for the neighborhood. Um, so it's a good thing. At the same time, I mentioned last week the, the crisis that's coming in public safety here in Lane County. And today our DA made an announcement that because of staffing shortages and particularly lack of experienced staff, because she's had people leave her staff and move to the state of Oregon in the um, Department of Justice, she can't file charges any longer on Class C felonies that aren't violent crimes. And I just, you know, just so you kind of know what that is, um, we're talking like second-degree burglary, which means a person was actually in your home with the intent to commit a, commit robbery, you know, to, to rob the place. Um, it includes um, unauthorized use of a vehicle, you know, where somebody just, you know, decides to take your car for a joyride. Um, which I, you know, to me, that's auto theft, but that, that that's, they, they usually sometimes plead it down to unauthorized use of vehicle. It includes, um, you know, um, failure to appear in the first degree, um, theft in the first degree. And she's also not going to uh, do a lot of uh, misdemeanor including second and third degree theft. That means, you know, there's going to be a lot of property crime that's going to go unpunished in Lane County. 
And this is a really sad day. Um, and I was asked for comment by um, a reporter from KZI, kind of quickly read what I wrote to her. And I, and, I, and I want to be clear, this is my personal opinion as an elected official in Lane County, and also I am the commissioner that sits on the Public Safety Coordinating Council, and as such, I am the chair of the Budget Committee for the Public Safety Coordinating Council. I am also on the Public Safety Committee for um, Association of Oregon Counties and have been a past chair and vice chair of that, that committee for years. So I have been lobbying Salem for years on public safety issues, um, from community corrections to um, DA funding to you name it. Um, changes in law, changes in sentencing laws, all of that I pay very close attention to. So this is just my opinion with that knowledge and not the opinion of our board or Lane County. And I, my statement to her was, the news that our district attorney's office will not be prosecuting many crimes is sad for the victims of those crimes and for the future victims of those um, that committed those crimes that didn't get prosecuted. It is also sad for the people committing the crimes as they will only be prosecuted once they have committed enough repeat offenses to warrant prosecution and probably end up in prison. Versus if we actually prosecuted these lower level crimes an earlier intervention in their criminal career with more possibility of diversion and rehabilitation. The real causes of this crisis are the state and federal governments. I'll repeat that line again. The real causes of this crisis are the state and federal governments. The state of Oregon used to support the DA's office to a much higher degree financially, but they have forced the, that responsibility down to the county governments to the point where they do not even pay the full cost of our district attorney's salary, let alone any of the cost of our deputy district attorneys or any of the admin staff or other costs of having a, a prosecution service in this county. They used to pay a portion of our deputy district attorney's salaries. Not anymore. Sorry, I'm, I'm adding to this letter a little bit. <laughs> While at the same time, the state is experiencing record revenues to the point where they're giving out such large raises to their employees that we are losing experienced attorneys to the Department of Justice. So understand they're underfunding our DAs, who, by the way, the first words they stay, say when they go into court and are recognized by the judge is, the state charges, not Lane County charges so-and-so with a crime, the state charges. There, the district attorney's office is, in, is forcing and prosecuting state crimes, not county crimes, yet they barely pay a portion of 
the DA's salary, let alone any of the other costs. So they forced that down on our counties, while at the same time making the the positions that are competitive with our, our deputy DA positions in the Department of Justice so lucratively uh, compensated, we're losing people. Once they have enough experience in the DA's office, they move over to the Department of Justice. And because they don't support us, we can't afford to pay equal. Sorry, I'm editorializing. Back to my letter. The state has also failed to keep up their promises to fund our parole and probation system. And I talked about that last week some. They have never funded it up to what the actual cost studies have shown we we need. While at the same time, there are other pieces of our our shared service system between counties and the state that they have failed to fund and reduced their percentage of funding over the years. For instance, they used to pay about 70% of our assessment and taxation department's costs. It's 30% now. We've had to pick up that other 40% with county money. At the same time, they've made our election systems more expensive without providing more money, motor voter, a few other things, unfunded. But, you know, I, can, I can go on and on and on about how they've added to the cost of counties, yet reduced the amount of money they're, they're providing us in these shared services that we do on behalf of the state. Because we collect taxes for about 180 other jurisdictions besides Lane County. Eugene School District 4J, Sayuslaw Fire and Rescue, you name it. We collect their taxes and distribute them at no charge to those taxing districts. It's a state function, really yet they've diminished their support. So we're in this fix where they're driving our cost up because we're gonna have to try and match those salaries somehow or other hang on to people. Our support from the state's constantly decreasing. Add on to this, the traditional timber counties like Lane County have also seen a failure by the federal government to keep up their end of the bargain for the lack of local taxes due to the majority of these counties being in federal ownership. The U.S. Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management do not pay local property taxes. And there were deals made years ago where they were supposed to be compensating us for that. And they failed to maintain that fiduciary responsibility to the counties to the point where we're at a small percentage of what they used to provide to counties. So at the same time, the state's reducing our funds, adding to our costs, we lost this federal support while being locked into a tax rate by measures 5, 47, and 50. So us timber counties are in a double whammy. We didn't have extra money we could put into some of these programs like Multnomah County that has an outrageous tax rate. They pay, they practically match one-to-one the state's dollars in their parole and probation system. We don't have that. 
We can't match that. Our parole and probation system exists almost entirely on the state funding right now, besides a few grants and other sources that we've managed to pull together. We don't have general fund available because we don't have this federal money anymore, and the state keeps reducing their money. And it's starting now with Class C felonies and misdemeanors. It's going to increase to where we're going to not be prosecuting violent crimes soon. And do you remember 2011, 2012, 13, 14, 15, when we thought several counties in this state were going to go bankrupt? We are on the edge of that happening again. If the legislature and the federal government do not change their failure to fund counties or give us the ability to somehow or another fund ourselves and give up some of their taxation authority back down to the counties. We are going to be seeing, you know, early releases from jails, loss of jail beds. We're going to see loss of our ability to supervise people when they come out of prison. We're going to see loss of prosecution. You're going to see things happen that cause people to not want to come to Oregon. I can tell you the folks from Travel Oregon and Travel Lane County think that one of the worst things that ever happened was the release of that 911 phone call down there in Josephine County where they couldn't send somebody to a woman's aid when her ex was trying to break in and ultimately murdered her. Do you remember that that 911 tape? It made national news. Do you know how many cancellations in Oregon happened after that at hotel stays and, and various travel arrangements? If we don't change what we're doing with our public safety system, and we're not mass incarcerating people in this state, we've dropped our prison population from 15,000 to 10,000 in two years. That's a third drop, and it was dropping ahead of that over the last seven years prior to 2020. We're giving people get-out-of-jail-free cards on a lot of stuff we probably shouldn't. People are being released without bail that have committed violent crimes. One of the costs that's going through the roof for us is our electronic monitoring systems because a lot of these people really shouldn't be out on the street, but we're being required to release them through Senate Bill 48 that passed in the last legislation, but that's another situation. At least they passed a piece of legislation, didn't try and do it by executive order. Now you can understand why I want to drink scotch tonight. This is all coming to a head for me. You know, extra constitutional power grabs by our governor and our president, while at the same time, the legislature is failing in their duties and at, at both the federal and state level to provide the funding necessary for us to carry out the powers they delegated down to us. They're requiring us to provide this prosecution. They're requiring us to collect the taxes for the districts. They're requiring us to run the elections. They're requiring us to have jails. They're requiring us to supervise 
people post-prison and under probation. But they're massively underfunding all of that, while at the same time robbing us of precious general fund monies by not doing anything with the Oregon and California railroad lands that the BLM manages for the 18 counties involved in that, let alone what they haven't done with the U.S. Forest Service lands, which impact even more counties. So when your house gets broken into and they steal less than $1,000 worth of, of stuff and they catch that person and the person gets released without being charged, which means it doesn't go on their record. You don't get charged and convicted. Only the arrest sort of sits there, but that doesn't mean much. You weren't charged. You weren't convicted. That person's back out on the street ready to rob somebody else. And how do you feel as a victim? After that person's violated your personal property, made you feel unsafe in your own home, taken what might have been a valuable family heirloom, pawned it off and probably is never recoverable, and that person walks free. And that person's probably stealing because they have an addiction issue. And we let them continue with that crime and addiction cycle, the crime to feed the addiction, to the point where as they get longer and longer into their addictive behavior, the harder and harder it is to interrupt and get that person sober, particularly if their addiction is methamphetamine, which the longer you use it, the more damage it does to your brain. And the psychosis and all that that go with it that 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 just becomes now a huge behavioral health issue. We arrest that person after their first or second or third time they steal to try and buy more drugs and get them into program, you know, charge them enough that they, they agree to go into programs. We may get that person, you know, clean and sober and, and back as a healthy individual serving, you know, contributing to society. We keep releasing that person without charging them. They get further down the road of their addiction. We end up eventually charging them for multiple property crimes to add up enough that we can send them to prison. And that person becomes a career criminal and a burden on society for their entire life. You know, damage to their, their brain pathways from long-term drug use psychological damage, probably even been victimized themselves, you know, while they were high. Who knows what else trauma they, they've gone through. Lack of early interdiction. And our criminal justice quite often is the earliest way to intervene in somebody's addictive behaviors. Is is such a crisis and so sad for society. It's sad for the victims of the crimes that person's going to commit. It's sad for the family of that person. It's sad for that person. And it's costly. What do you think costs more for us? Getting that person to low-level crime and getting them into a drug rehab program where if they don't you know, follow the program, they end up serving their, their sentence. That sort of trade-off, you know, they call that drug court. 
which by the way, we're having trouble funding because of the reductions in funding from the legislature. Some of our, our, our diversion programs are in serious, serious financial trouble right now. Also because we can't pay enough to compete with the state workers in similar programs. Folks like sponsors and other local nonprofits are losing staff to state agencies that pay more. Hmm. Yeah, it's an issue, not just for the DA's office. We have got to do something about this. We have to interrupt this cycle. We have to put pressure on our legislature to fully fund county programs. They're inventing new programs and throwing tens of millions of dollars at them. These aren't the high cost programs. The community correction system is a $200 million item in a multi-billion dollar, tens of billions of dollars state budget. And you would hardly notice it in the state budget. Support for the DA's office is a blip. There are 36 counties. They supply about $90,000 a county for the DA's um, salaries, and that's it. So 36 times 90, just, just a few million. They could tenfold that amount for DA support without hardly touching the state budget. <sighs> I have to calm down for a minute here. So I'm going to remind folks, we are a call-in show. I know that was a long, long rant. <laughs> Started with executive orders and, and, and land use stuff and swung over to the public safety, but it all kind of relates to the state of Oregon and is exacerbated by the federal government. But we are a call-in show, and it's 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 because that raises a little hand on our board, and that lets Robin my call screener and producer extraordinaire know you want to get in on the Bo's Nose Show. Again, it's 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1. And we'll get you on the show, talk about what you want to talk about. If not, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, talk about a couple other things, maybe some a little bit more lighthearted, some maybe not. And uh, we'll see see if anyone has it, it hits anyone's fancy. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the worlds because they just ended. I want to talk about Lane County Fair. I want to talk about heat wave that's, you know, making the news right now. And, and another governor, governor declared emergency. Um, <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Uh, so um, the world athletic games, you know, that was, you know, such a buildup. And it was like, oh, man, we're this is the first time it's in the U.S., and we're holding it in such a small city. So there was all this concern about, would Eugene be able to host the Worlds? And frankly, we, there's, we almost didn't get given that host city site because the folks that run the World Athletic Games had the same question. Could you do it? But I guess post-COVID, not as many people traveling, it turned out, yeah, we did handle the Worlds. And the event actually went off pretty well. There were a few minor things about, you know, thousands of a second false starts and stuff like that that, you know, were problems. Um, but, you know, 
and people coming for the world's being victimized by property crimes. But that, that I don't want to get back to that. Um, uh, but in, in general, the actual event was a success, and Team USA outdid themselves. They, they put on a show for the, for the American public as far as their performance and number of medals they won, much higher than past world championships. The issue, though, was attendance really didn't live up to the billing. Neither did the business that it was supposed to generate. Um, to the point where they actually were asking locals to start going out to restaurants again because they scared people away from them in the buildup. They kept talking about, you know, our restaurant's going to have enough staff and our hotel's going to have enough staff. They're wringing their hands and, and worrying themselves to death. And they were worried about traffic and they're worried, you know, that they talked about, that, you know, the Airbnbs all getting rented up as far away as Salem and Roseburg and stuff like that. There was no housing and whether it's going to be a housing shortage and it all turned out to be not true. They maybe had half-filled stands most of the time. Um, I think the capacity was close to 20,000. And I think for most days they were selling about 11,000 tickets and only about 9,000 those were actually being scanned at the gates daily. I get these reports daily because we have a, 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 a emergency command center set up for the public safety portion and, and public health portions of, of having an international event in town. Um, it just did not live up to its billing as far as attendance went. But, you know, of course, there's also legend the um, mascot, which I, I still don't think looked like a Sasquatch. Um, <laughs> somebody thought he was supposed to be COVID. <laughs> I heard all sorts of things, but apparently his head got stolen at one point. <laughs> uh, speaking of property crimes. Oh, my. Um, so that that was the world's. Um, it was kind of a, a, a big yawn in some ways. Although, I, you know, there were a lot of people involved that did a great job. We didn't see some mass disease outbreak that was caused by the world, at least not yet. Um, we didn't see any major public safety issues. We didn't see any major traffic jams, you know, no riots, no nothing. So um, no, you know, acts of terrorism or, or, or anything. So I, in so many ways, it was a successful thing, but I do understand that even the TV audiences were way down for this, this um, World Games. So sorry to the organizers, but something just didn't seem to click. And I don't know if it's maybe all the news stories about the riots in Portland rubbing off on Eugene, or it's all the news stories about the gun violence in Portland rubbing off on Eugene um, and some of the other things. Or maybe it was the fact that your ticket prices were freaking outrageous. Oh, my God. Did anyone ever go and look what it cost just to attend an afternoon event? You know, for, it was like $80 to $100 for one small short session in the nosebleed seats. 
And if you wanted a full day pass, those were starting around a thousand, it seemed like. And good lord, if you wanted a, a you know entire week of something, it, it was expensive. And I think that's what drove attendance down. It cost too darn much. And gasoline to drive here was expensive. Airline tickets were expensive. And the hotels and Airbnbs had all jacked up their prices in anticipation of fully being booked out. It was too expensive. By the way, if you notice that gas prices are falling, no, that's not because of anything the government's done. It's because they got so expensive that people have curtailed their driving to where our, our daily consumption of gasoline in this country has dropped below 2020 COVID pandemic levels. Yes, you heard that right. Our demand is dropped through the floor. But of course, you know, we're not in recession because, you know, we, we, you can't use the old definition of recession. That doesn't count anymore, even though it's been used for decades. Two consecutive negative quarters of growth equals a recession. It's not a depression. It's a recession. But that is the technical definition, and we are going to see us hit that tomorrow when they actually come out with a quarterly GDP report. By the way, the Fed's raised interest rates another three-quarters of points today, so thank you for helping me not sell my house. Oh, gosh, that's what happens when you print money. I was supposed to get lighter during this section, wasn't I? Oh, let's talk about Lane County Fair. <laughs> and the Lane County Fair even had controversy, too. And, and yeah, this comes under the, the what won't offend people. Sometimes, and I agree, this was probably poor choices by the vendors. Mind you, um, we contract with a company to run the midway of, of the, the fair, and we've been, con- you know, we get bids and we, you know, set, sign a contract, and they run those all those rides and some of the booths where you can compete for for prizes. Well, a couple of booths kind of had some unfortunate prizes which could be considered derogatory and racist, I would say. Um, and frankly, if, you know, I would have just not used my tickets at those booths. <laughs> maybe or not wanted one of those prizes. Maybe said something to the person running the booth that, you know, I was going to play this game, but the prizes you're giving away, you know, you might want to rethink them. But no, that is not how we react in today's society. Once you are triggered and offended, you must be outraged. And you must express that outrage to everyone and everything. My inbox was flooded with emails about the racist prizes being given out at the Lane County Fair. Um, (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah, it just... amazes me what people will get outraged about. Meanwhile, we're going to not be able to charge people for crimes, and we're probably headed to a public safety crisis in this county, and we are going to be absolutely outraged over a Chinese penny toy 
that a booth is giving away if you get three rings on the neck of a bottle or whatever they were doing, you know? What was that, Robin? Come on, man. Yeah, come on, man. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I just get, you know, it just, you know, uh, which gets to one of the reasons outrage happens is because the media is promoting it. And it's also promoting um, the sensationalism over weather. You know, it used to be um, we would have a storm. And they would call them a nor'easter on the East Coast, you know, where I grew up. Now they're called a bomb cyclone (laughs) and superstorms. Now, mind you, in 1963, there was one of those atropical slight cyclones, you know, that, that came out of the Northeast that wiped the East Coast practically clean from Nantucket down through the Outer Banks of North Carolina. The Ash Wednesday storm of 1963. People forget about the Ash Wednesday storm and they think about, quote, Hurricane Diana you know, that came in the wintertime, actually caused less physical damage and was a less potent storm than the Ash Wednesday storm, but there had just been more dollar value of housing built right on the coast. So it caused more dollar damage, but it was actually a weaker storm. But now you have to call everything a super storm and a bomb cyclone, you know, is, is the new term. Well, heat waves are getting the same sort of, of overpress, and, and I've been watching this current heat wave where we barely kicked 100 and it's only been a few days but you know we're gonna we're gonna run around like chickens with their head cut off and i was like yeah when i first moved to oregon i remember sweating my butt off because i i had a house that was built in 1960 and had um, aluminum slider windows in it and it wasn't insulated well and it had you know one air conditioning through the wall unit (laughs) in the uh, the uh, family slash kitchen dining room area um, that was supposed to cool the entire house and did not. So we had to do the, you know, the usual trick of Oregonians where you open all the windows once you get to turnover point somewhere about 8 or 9 p.m. in the evening and somewhere about 8 in the morning when it starts warming up, you close all the windows and hope you can hold the cold in the house till the end of the day. And we were hitting 101 and 105 during those heat waves of 1996 and 1998. What, a lot hotter than now. And in fact, during those heat waves, eWeb set its record water consumption that haven't been touched since then as far as number of gallons in a day used by the citizens of Eugene. Now, mind you, a lot of water conservation work's been done to prevent some of that peak peak demand, but they set records for peak demand on those hot days. But people were also doing another Oregon trick of let's run the sprinklers on the upwind side of the house and use that evaporative cooling <laughs> to keep the house cool and run them basically all day long in the heat. Um, yeah, because water's cheap. <laughs> Electricity is not. So they, you know, 
I remember those heat waves of the summer of 96 and the summer of 98. And, you know, I don't remember, you know, people dying as farm workers. I don't remember, you know, the, the, the oh, my God, we're going to, you know, run around with chickens like a head cut off and having open cooling centers, et cetera. We just survived it. Yeah, I, I don't think we were any stronger or whatever, but it's just like our media is making us alarmed about something that was normal weather 25 years ago. In fact, it was even hotter 25 years ago. <sighs> but we have to be outraged. We have to be alarmed. And we have to have an executive order declaring an emergency. And ultimately, we're going to make some rules and, and force everybody to hear those rules without legislation. While we don't fund things that are really critical to the safety of Oregonians, like our district attorney's office, like our parole officers. And we even make it hard for counties to collect their own taxes by not funding that system. At the same time, the federal government stops funding land, you know, the counties for the lands they own in the counties. So it's a double whammy. Well, with that, it's National Scotch Day. <laughs> and we'll be back next week after I go celebrate National Scotch Day because after talking about all these building crises and the extra constitutional powers the governor has been trying to um, do, I need a drink. <laughs> and excuse me. Um, as the smoke from California is getting to my sinuses. Um, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Bo's Nose Show, coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. <laughs>